0: Thank you, Seth. Matthew 1, 18 through 21 is where we're going to be this morning in the reading of the Word of God. This is what it says. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the word of God. Thanks for coming, and you can be seated. I'd like to pray. Before I begin, please bow with me. Father, I need your help and I want your help to present these truths rightly. And according to the scriptures, we all need your help to hear them and receive them rightly. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work in our hearts to make our hearts soft, to make our hearts attentive, our minds sharp and ready to hear these truths. And Lord, that you would please be working in our lives to cause us to want to walk according to the truth and to want to be like Jesus. And for those of you, for those who don't know you yet, Lord, I pray that you would cause them for the first time to want to be saved from their sins. And I pray this in Jesus' perfect name, amen. Thank you very much for coming this morning, choosing to worship with us at Christ Fellowship. I'm so glad that you're here, and of course, it's not a coincidence that you are the ones here to hear this message this morning. God has a word for you this morning. Do you believe that? God has a word for you this morning from his scriptures. We're continuing to compare and contrast the two kings that we find in the Christmas narratives of the Bible. We find the Christmas narratives in the Gospels of Matthew and in the Gospels of Luke, And those two kings that we find in those narratives are, of course, King Jesus and King Herod. These two couldn't be more different. So I'm creating, as you know, five sermons where I'm showing and talking about the five differences found between the two of them in these two Christmas narratives. Five different things that I was able to pick up on. There's probably more. But the first one that we talked about was the humility and the pride of these two kings. The second one was the truth and the lies. The wisdom and the folly was last week. And today we're going to be talking about two kings, savior and oppressor. That's what I've titled the message this morning, two kings, savior and oppressor. Now concerning those two, concerning these things, Those that we count in our lives, in our world as saviors, and others that we deem as oppressors, the one brings liberty, Savior, and the other takes it away, doesn't he? An oppressor. One gives hope, and the other, of course, despair. One's loved, and the other's Hated. There are no oppressors that are loved. They're only hated. One's admired and the other's despised. For one, we're thankful that he came, and for the other, we long for him to be gone the day that he's gone. They couldn't be more opposite, saviors and oppressors. And like I already said, the two kings we have in our account, they couldn't be more opposite either. Concerning Herod, now, We do learn plenty of him from the text of the Bible. However, we learn a lot more about the facts of his life through historians, just through historians out there in the world. Josephus had things to say about him. Other historians, both ancient and modern, have written a lot about Herod because the Bible's not supposed to be all about Herod, so God doesn't focus all on Herod. Well, from his article titled Meet Herod the Great, Ruthless Ruler of the Jews, by a gentleman named Zach Zavada. Zach said this, Herod worked well with, the, with Israel's Roman conquerors. As a skilled politician, he knew how to get things done. His massive building program included theaters, amphitheaters, a port, markets, temples, housing, palaces, and walls around Jerusalem. Yes, All that, some of those things that still stand today, like the wailing wall, we call it, that's all because of Herod. He was very skilled to do all those things, but it was at a cost. Listen to this. He goes on to say, Herod's heavy taxes to pay for lavish projects forced an unfair burden on the Jewish citizens. He also kept order in Israel by using secret police and a tyrannical rule according to zach zavada so this man though he did some big things that even the apostles say to jesus when they're in the temple behold all these wonderful buildings remember them saying that that was because of herod herod did that but at what cost the cost of oppression His was an oppressive rule. He did whatever was necessary to get whatever he wanted. Whether it was manipulation or murder or whether it was conniving or cruelty, Herod was going to build his own kingdom at the expense of other people's wealth and at the expense of other people's well-being. That's who Herod was. That's how he acted. And what about Jesus? Jesus. Jesus, at the expense of his own well-being, made a people spiritually wealthy. Jesus did whatever was necessary to procure what the Father wanted for the well-being of the Father's people. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might Be made rich. What a contrast from Herod, right? Like we sing in the Christmas song, Christ was born for this. That's what he was born for. He was born to save us. Last week we mentioned Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. When he got his speech back, when he wrote on that tablet, his name is John, or the Lord, miraculously gave him his speech back. Why did he lose his speech? Well, because he doubted. He doubted the Lord's truth. He doubted the Lord's word, which was through the angel Gabriel. And he was not able to speak until the day of John the Baptist's birth. So when he finally wrote down his name is John and fulfilled what he was supposed to do, he got his speech back. And what's he do except let out this long and really beautiful prophecy? We read part of it last week. Another part of it says this. He's prophesying about his own son and about what his son will do for the Messiah. Listen to what he says. Because in this prophecy that's mainly about John the Baptist, we get truths about Jesus, the Savior. Luke 1, Luke 1, 76 and 77 says this. And you, child, that's John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, that's Jesus, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. See, Jesus is that savior for our sins. Remember how I read earlier that the angel said to Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their what? Sins. Exactly. Jesus is the savior. For our sins. Did you know that the name Jesus means the Lord saves? Did you know that? In Hebrew, it's the word Yehoshua. In Aramaic, it's Yeshua, as you've heard. And it means the Lord saves. That's why he says, You shall name him Jesus, the Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why he said that. So this child, John the Baptist, Zechariah prophesied is going to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, but what do we, not but, but and, what do we see John the Baptist doing and saying in John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day he, as John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the what? Sin of the world see that's why Jesus came Christ was born for this to save us from our sins he's the savior he wants to free us deliver us rescue us forgive us from our sin what a savior and this is how Jesus saves us by conquering our sin problem see that's your biggest problem your sin. This is your biggest problem. All your other earthly problems, they pale in in comparison to that one. Your sin is your biggest problem. Because see, question. I've got a a list of questions here for you that I really want you to think about. Because we think we have problems, and some of us do. I get that. But sometimes our problems need to be put in the right category of our biggest problem. What if you get that job that you want, but die in your sins unforgiven? What if you get that spouse that you want, but die in your sins unforgiven? What if you get that house that you want, but die in your sins unforgiven? What if you get that retirement that you want, but you die in your sins unforgiven? What if you get that healing that you want? but die in your sins unforgiven. You see, none of these things matter without a Savior. None of them. Because some of us will deem that we have these problems of maybe, I don't have the job I want, maybe I don't have a spouse, the house, the retirement, the healing. These are my problems. They need to be checked by your biggest problem. If your biggest problem isn't taken care of, then what if you get all those things? What if you get all those things, but die in your sins unforgiven? None of these things matter without a Savior. Your sin is your biggest problem. And your sin is oppressive. And the ultimate oppressor, the devil, uses it to keep you oppressed. Okay? Your sin is oppressive to you and the ultimate oppressor, the devil, uses it to keep you oppressed. But listen to this from Jesus in Luke 4, 16 through 21. You might remember this. Jesus goes into the synagogue, starts reading from the scroll. It says this, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. I want to pause there. Allow me to take a bit of a rabbit trail for a moment, because this is important. Notice what it says about Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, God in the flesh. God in the flesh. What's it say about him? And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, made it his custom to worship weekly in the synagogue. Jesus, in essence, went to church every Sabbath day. He made that his custom. Jesus went to worship weekly. I've heard a lot of excuses before as to why people don't come to church. And some of those excuses are things like, well, because of the people there, because of the hypocrites, and because of this and because of that. See, that's what you see on the outside of people. I don't want to go because of that You know, that person does this and says this and acts this way. Imagine if you were in the room with those people and you could read their thoughts. <laughs> all of them at once. You could hear what they were thinking. And Jesus still went to church with them. All right? Now, I, get, I, grant, I grant you this. Sometimes there are legitimate reasons why we can't come to church. You're, you're, you're out of the state. You're sick. Something like that. This is not a guilt trip on anybody at all. Nothing like that. I'm just saying, look at Jesus, perfect Son of God, God Himself. (laughs) And He came to worship God with those who called themselves the people of God. Great point. Now back to what I'm saying. Verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. He's reading now from Isaiah chapter 61. He reads verses 1 and 2. He may have read more, but this is what we need to focus on. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has allowed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set that liberty, that means freedom, those who are oppressed, there's our word, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm that guy. I'm the one. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim freedom, liberty to the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind has set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus said, this is why I came. I'm the savior of the ones who are oppressed. He says, it's fulfilled in your hearing this day. Now, you know the rest of the story. They jump up and they say, hey. We don't like that because only Messiah can fulfill this. And you're saying you're him? You're just Joseph's son. And they try to kill him. They try to throw him off the cliff. And it says, and he passed through their midst. It wasn't his time. You see, what's behind all earthly oppressors is the ultimate oppressor, the devil. These that are oppressed, they're oppressed in their sin, they're captured. Do the will of the devil. And Jesus says, I came to set at liberty the captives. Look at this in 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. A bit of history here, a bit of knowledge for you. First and 2 Timothy and Titus, those letters in the New Testament, we call them the pastoral epistles. Why? Because Timothy and Titus were young ministers. Okay, so we call them the pastoral epistles. A lot of what's in these letters are for young ministers. Of course, there's principles in there for all of us, all God followers. So that's the context here. That's why he starts off by saying this in verse 24 of Second Timothy 2. And the Lord's servant, he means like a minister, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and then here's where we get a little bit of insight into what the devil's like. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The devil is active and he captures unbelievers and they do his will. He is that oppressor, they're captive to do his will. That's why Jesus said, I came to set at liberty. The captives, who are they captive to? The devil, in doing what? His will, what's his will? That they sin and stay in their sin and die in their sin. Because he knows where he's going. He knows he's gonna be cast into the lake of fire and he wants to take everyone with him who he can. He hates you and he especially hates your children. That's why there's such an onslaught against the youth. Of our day, and that's where there's an onslaught against babies in the womb. He hates children, and he hates you. And he wants to keep you captive to your sin. One of his greatest techniques is making you think you're free, even though you're captive. You want real freedom? Do these wicked things that'll make you free. It'll be a revolution. You'll be set free so they called that that happened in the 60s and the 70s the sexual revolution. You need to get out of those traditional ways of thinking about marriage and sex and things like that and just do what you want to do with whoever you want to do it with and you'll be you'll be free. How'd that work out for them? How's it still work out for people today? Listen to Hebrews 2 now, verses 14 through 15. where We we learn even more about this oppressor who's actually the driving influence behind all earthly oppressors. He's the power behind all earthly oppressors. He was the power behind Herod and his wickedness. The ultimate oppressor is like this. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 15. He begins talking about Jesus. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise, that's Jesus, partook of the same things, flesh and blood. He's talking about Christmas right there, by the way. Jesus partook of flesh and blood. That's what he means. That's Christmas. That through death, his own death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Who is that? That is the devil, he says. We don't even have to guess here. He's got the power of death. Not ultimate power of death, but he has power of death when God gives it to him. That's why he said to Job, you can make him sick, but you can't kill him. Martin Luther said the devil is God's devil, meaning he's on a leash. He can only do what God lets him do. Verse 15, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Slavery. If you want to know if the unsaved are slaves, check them on their fear of death. It says here that the devil uses the fear of death to keep people slaves. If you want to know if the devil is oppressing the unsaved with their fear of death, just look at how the unsaved Reacted three years ago during the pandemic. I mean, when a new virus hit our, hit our world, a new virus hits our world, we don't know much about it. A virus, mind you, that had a 98% survival rate. You know what that means? Only 2% of people that got it died from it. Now, granted, I'm not downplaying anyone's death that passed away from the coronavirus. Not at all. But what I'm saying, the only point I'm trying to make here, is that a virus hits our world with a 98% survival rate. And how did the unsaved act during that? How did the unsaved act during that? The world was shut down almost. Talk about fear of death. I saw some people that were normally somewhat level-headed unbelievers, if if an unbeliever can be level-headed, um, just freak out. And some Christians even took their marching orders from them. I mean, look at how much fear gripped the hearts of the unsaved. Look at how selfishly and erratically the unsaved acted during that time. You know why? Because they fear death so much. They are gripped by it. They're controlled by it. And of course, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a healthy balance, a balanced sense of uh, wanting to avoid those things that can kill us, but there's a difference between common sense and being controlled by your absolute terror of death. I mean, guess what I do when I get in a car? I put my seatbelt on. You know why? I, I, I'm not wanting to fly through my windshield and die if I get in a wreck. Of course, there's, there's common sense there, but what I'm saying is this: I'm not gripped by this fear. It doesn't control my life. But for unbelievers, the devil uses their fear of death, it says in Hebrews, to keep them captive. This is one thing that the devil uses to keep people oppressed. You can tell how much true, real peace you have by how you reacted during the pandemic. You can. It was a test for a lot of us, wasn't it? One of the great things about tests for the Christians is we can learn from them and retake them. The Bible says it's appointed to man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Guess what? We all know that unless Jesus Christ comes back first, no one gets off the planet alive. I don't know if you don't know this or not. You're going to die. Of course you know it, unless Jesus comes back. One day there will be a funeral service for you. Now, there's an old saying, dying's just a part of living. I think Forrest Gump's mom even says that to him in the movie dying's just a part of living. Well, let me tell you this it actually wasn't supposed to be that way in the beginning. It wasn't. Death's actually an intruder. The Bible calls death an enemy. Death's now here because of sin, the first sin of our original parents, Adam and Eve. Because concerning the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Lord said to them, On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Die. Death entered the world that day. And with death came decay, disease, suffering, death, the curse upon the whole planet. All that came in that day. And those are now, unfortunately, a part of our reality because death came through sin, the Bible tells us. Death's our great enemy, and no man escapes its grip. Nobody. Except for one. There was one man who escaped its grip. Jesus Christ came to the world, born of the Virgin Mary, and he perfectly obeyed all of God's righteous laws, the ones that you and I haven't kept. You see, where the first man, Adam, failed, that he didn't obey God. The last, ultimate Adam, we're told in the scriptures, the God man, succeeded. Because the Bible says he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He was sinless, unlike us, we're sinful. But Jesus willing to chose, he willingly chose to take that punishment for sinners. The, sin, this, the punishment that we deserve, punishment that we deserve, the punishment that we deserve. I've noticed in media and things like that, people like to talk about what they deserve. <laughs> he was nailed to the cross and he shed his blood. And he took God's wrath upon himself for the sin of all those who would ever believe. The wrath that honestly had no business falling there that day. Because it looked like that day he was being punished like those other thieves. One on his right, one on his left. But behind the curtain, what was actually happening was he was actually willingly choosing to suffer in our place and take the wrath that should have been ours. What a savior. How opposite from Herod. How opposite from any oppressor that's ever been on planet Earth, this man dies and takes something that has no business even falling on him, the wrath of God. I'm speaking of it as if it's just like a thing, but we, we can't get it. I have a pastor friend that told me once, I've never forgotten this. He said, Cohen, if you could somehow look into hell, he said, if you could just look into hell for five seconds, he said, you'd probably throw up. Five seconds. And that hit me. Because I never actually thought about hell, I don't think, uh, rightly. And that helped me understand a little bit better. The Bible says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a savior. Right? And after suffering under the father's wrath, he he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he died. But we know that's not the end of the story. He rose again on on the third day, proving that the price of sin was paid for, proving that the father was pleased with the payment of the son when he rose again from the dead, and proving that he is who he says he is, the mighty son of God, with authority over death. Co-equal with the father. See, Jesus said this, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. That's a savior. That's the one that we need. Do you believe this? That's what Jesus asked Martha when he told her that he's the resurrection and the life. He looked at her and he said, those four words, do you believe this? Jesus doesn't fear death, like those who are captive to the devil. You know why he doesn't fear death? Because he has authority over death. He has the keys of death and hell, power over them. He defeated death, and he paid for our sin debt. So if you're going to rise again to eternal life with the Lord... It's only going to be through faith in the one who actually has conquered your great enemy, death, who's the savior for those who come to him in faith. I mean, what's your plan otherwise? If it's not Jesus, really, that's my question for you. What's your plan otherwise? What other plan do you have for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life from death? What is your other plan? If it's not Jesus, what is it? Because You're going to die, and you're going to be captive to that fear of death unless you've been set free, unless you've been saved by the Savior who liberates the captives from their fear of death. We have no Savior otherwise. Like the song that I mentioned to, that I made reference to earlier, says this, "'Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice.'" Now ye need not fear the grave. Peace, peace. Jesus Christ was born to save, calls you one and calls you all to gain his everlasting hall. Christ was born to save, Christ was born to save. (laughs) Right? At the beginning, I said of our two kings, I said one brings liberty, the other takes it. One gives hope, the other despair. One's loved, the other's hated. I said one's admired, and the other is despised. Remember me saying that at the beginning? Now, let me end with this. Now that we've learned that it's the devil behind every worldly oppressor, we can now say this as well. The Savior brings peace, and the oppressor brings fear. The Savior brings peace, and the oppressor brings fear. So, questions then to end this out which one of these is influencing your life more peace or fear which one of those is influencing your life more peace or fear which byproduct describes your life more peace or fear which king is ruling in your life more If you do find yourself too often overwhelmed by fear, overcome by anxiety, gripped by these things, I can promise some things are true about you. You're not in the scriptures as often as you need to be. And you're not praying as often as you need to be. And you're not among God's people as often as you need to be. I know that that's true about you if you're being ruled and controlled by your fear and by your anxiety. Now, lest you think, how does Cohen know that? How did he know that? Is he magic? No. I know that because guess what? I've been there. When fear and anxiety and worry grip me more than they should be. You know what's true about Cohen? Not in the scriptures as often I should be. Not praying as often as I should be. That's that's why I know. Because I've been there. I'm just like you. And I'm here as your pastor trying to help you. Not only help you, Christian, who struggles with these things, but help you, non-Christian, to know that Christ was born to save. He is the Savior. So make the necessary steps to submit to and follow the right king, the king who saves. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners, to rescue those who are oppressed, as the word of God says that they are captured by the devil to do his will. They are in fear of death and subject to lifelong slavery. Lord, thank you that Jesus Christ saves those. He liberates the captives. He sets them free free through his death, burial, and resurrection. I pray, Lord, for sinners that they would be saved, that they would believe this, that they would fall on Jesus Christ with all the weight of their sin. Fall on him and be saved. And help us Christians, Lord, to fall on the truths of your word, to put all of our weight upon those truths and live them out and experience that peace that the Savior brings not the fear that the oppressor gives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.